Good morning. I failed earlier to mention that it is uh, Willa's birthday this upcoming Friday, so if you remember that, uh, please wish Willa Rasmussen a happy birthday. Uh, I want to begin today with a story from Dwight Pentecost. Uh, Dwight Pentecost tells the story of a church in Dallas that became so bitterly divided over an issue that they uh, took it outside the church into the legal system. They, they sued and countersued. There was two factions in the church, and they sued and countersued each other to try and get control of the property and then kick the other side out. And when their case finally came before a judge, he ruled that it wasn't a civil matter, it was an ecclesiastical matter, and it really needed to be decided by the denomination, the, the denominational leadership uh, of that uh, church. And so the denomination sent out uh, leadership uh, to investigate what was going on, and they spent weeks trying to untangle the history of the mess that was there and hear arguments and counter-arguments from each side. And eventually, the denominational leadership awarded the church to one side in the faction. And if you've been around the church for any length of time, you know what the, ch- the side that didn't, you know, that, that was ruled against, you know what they did. They just went down the road and started another church. Uh, But uh, it was reported, according to Dwight Pentecost, it was reported in a Dallas newspaper after the whole thing was said and done, this newspaper reported that according to the denominational leadership, when they finally got down to the spark that ignited the whole controversy, uh, that it was something that all began at a church dinner. It all started uh, when someone served a smaller piece of ham to a church leader than to the child next to him, and for their part, the server openly, publicly confessed that it was a calculated slight uh, to get back at this church leader for something that uh, he and the church leader disagreed about that was a a church matter. And so, tragically, a Bible-believing church destroyed its gospel witness in the community in Dallas uh, at that time because they couldn't resolve their conflicts. And um, These kinds of situations are why here at Grace Fellowship Church, uh, all of our fellowship lunches are (laughs) self-serve. No, no. (laughs) If if we're going to overcome conflict, we need a little bit better plan than having self-serve fellowship lunches. Uh, And uh, and we're going to look at that today because what Paul is going to introduce us to here is the idea of preserving unity in the church, Uh, division amongst those who claim to follow Christ. Uh, brings reproach on His name, it hinders the progress of the gospel, it damages the church, and so unity is important. Please turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Ephesians 4, 1. And as you're turning there, allow me to give you a brief review of what we learned last week. Uh, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus is a two-part letter. The first three chapters are primarily doctrinal. The last three chapters are primarily uh, they're practical, applicational in nature. Chapters 1 through 3 are, are about God's great plan of redemption. Chapters 4 through 6 are about how that plan of redemption applies in very specific ways to your life in the here and now. Chapter 4, verse 1 is the hinge on which the entire letter turns. It functions as a transition from the doctrinal section to the practical section. And uh, we talked about this last week. It's also a topic sentence. It's a topic sentence for all that follows, and it gives this overarching command for us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Now, in Greek, that idea of worthy, it carried with it two 
word pictures. The first was a set of scales, and on one side of the scales is our walk, our conduct, how we conduct ourselves as Christians. On the other side of the scales are all the privileges we've received in Christ, and our goal is to bring our conduct up to a point where it balances with all the privileges we've been given through the gospel. The second picture behind this idea of worthy has to do with clothing that matches. Uh, Just as you wouldn't knowingly go out in public in clothing that clashes, so you don't want to have a life with your words and actions that clashes with the message of the gospel that you advocate. Uh, And the rest of Paul's letter really explains how it is that we can have a life that matches this high calling of being adopted as a son or daughter of God. With those reminders in mind, let's read the text together now, starting in Ephesians 4. Uh, We're going to read verses 1 through 6. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What the Holy Spirit said to the Ephesians through the Apostle Paul, He is now saying to us. Let's pray. O Holy Spirit, You inspired Paul to pen these words for our benefit. Please show us what this unity you've called us to is, what it means to be diligent to preserve it, and how to obey your command that we maintain it. In the saving name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, after having arrived at the hinge of this letter in chapter 4, verse 1, and and having understood that chapter 4, verse 1 is a topic sentence for the next three chapters, The main challenge for us in understanding Paul's words is to discern where the paragraph is, right? Um, In the original Greek, they didn't write in paragraphs, but as English speakers, we think and we write in paragraphs, and so we want to discern what is the unit of thought in this letter. Obviously, chapter 4, verse 1 is the beginning of a new paragraph. That's clear. But where does the paragraph end, and what's the main point of the paragraph? Well, I believe that the paragraph ends all the way down in verse 16, and that the main point of the paragraph is unity in the church. Now, last week, I preached that we walk in a manner worthy of our calling by being humble and gentle and patient and showing tolerance for others in love, and then I applied that to parenting, particularly parenting adult children. And I believe that uh, everything I said uh, was true and a, a good reminder and theologically accurate, but I want you to notice that Paul's emphasis in this paragraph is on unity within the church, within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, most commentators and pastors that I consulted believe even that verse 3 really is the heart and soul of the paragraph where we're commanded to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the church. And it's a reminder for us that 
Christianity is a team sport. It's not a solo act. When you were called back into relationship with God through Christ, you were put in a family with God as your father and other Christians as your brothers and sisters. And of course, both inside and outside the church, we want to walk in a way that adorns the gospel we believe in with the good works of being humble and gentle and patient and loving. But your most important calling within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And so this morning, I want to unfold these verses for you, but I want to do it a little bit differently than I normally do it. Normally, I just go sort of in order through the verses grammatically. Today, I want to pose three questions of the text and then answer them, and I think that will sort of draw out Paul's meaning for us. The first question is this, what is the unity of the Spirit? I mean, it sounds pretty straightforward, but Let's make sure that we understand exactly what Paul is talking about. The Greek word in verse 3 that we translate as unity comes from the root of the Greek word for the number one. So, in the Greek mindset, unity had to do with oneness, at being oneness with others. We are one. Hence the sermon title, We Are One. This is where I got the sermon title from. In Christ, we are one. We now have one Father. It was one Spirit who drew us to faith and repentance. We're one in the Lord. And note that this unity in verse 3, it already exists among us as a reality. It isn't something we have to create. It isn't something we try to build. It already exists among us, and we're to try and preserve it or maintain it. And the source of the unity isn't just a collection of objective facts, although in verses 4 through 6, we see that we share the same baptism, the same faith, the same Lord. There are some objective facts behind it. But notice that the source of this unity in verse 3 is a person. Uh, Notice in verse 3 that the word spirit is capitalized. That's our translator's way of emphasizing that this is Paul speaking of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the source of our unity in the church. He created the unity, and now it's our part to maintain it. So, what is this unity that Paul is speaking of? Well, it is a oneness amongst all true Christians that was created by the Holy Spirit that we're then to seek to maintain. We don't create it. We can't force it to happen with uh, external pressure or manipulation. It's there as a work of the Spirit, and we seek to maintain it. The second question is, what is my responsibility to this unity? Well, Paul spells it out in verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Uh, now, those words, being diligent, in Greek, they're a, partis- uh, they're a participial phrase. It's a participle, they're not a verb. I bring this up because in Greek, there's an actual verb tense of command that makes it crystal clear when the author is giving a command, so there's no ambiguity. English isn't as good that way. We don't have that. But in Greek, they had that, so there was no ambiguity. Very clear, very straightforward. I confess that being diligent is not a verb. It's not the verb tense of command that Paul is using. But I think that the idea of the Apostle Paul saying this, and when you look at the context of the paragraph, I think it's meant to be understood as a command, as a direction from an apostle, that in a sense, the sense is that it's a command to be diligent to preserve unity. Uh, And we don't have a good English equivalent for the word that we bring over as diligent, in other parts of the New Testament, we translate it as to be eager or to make every effort. And really, it's a word that wraps up diligence, but also with a sense of urgency and haste, all into one 
word. And so I believe Paul would be communicating something like this. Unity is really important, so work hard at maintaining it, and don't delay if there's something you need to do to help maintain, right? If something comes up, and it's obvious, but you kind of like avoiding conflict and disagreement, don't avoid that. Be, be, have an urgency. Be diligent about staying on top of these things and helping preserve unity. Uh, unity in the church is so important. Our Lord Jesus stressed it. You can hear that in the way He prayed. I think Mark uh, prayed that prayer earlier in, uh, in John 17 when Jesus is praying to the Father uh, at the Last Supper with His disciples. He says this, the glory which you've given me, I have given them, so that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Our unity is important to Jesus. It's also important to the Father. And you know this, if you're a parent of more than one child, you know that one of your heart's desires is that your children would love one another. You you don't want to see your children uh, fight and quarrel when they're in the house and then grow up to be adults that are alienated from one another. That's not what you want for your children. You want your children to love one another uh, and to care for one another and to take care of one another when you can't or there's some reason you're you're unable to. And the same is true of our heavenly Father, Uh, although He is never unable to care for us. He wants to see us love one another. Uh, Unity was also crucial if you study the writings of the Apostle Paul. Uh, It's crucial here, obviously, in uh, his letter to Ephesians, but you see him do this in other letters as well. For instance, in his letter to the Philippians, it's it's a deep concern to him that Euodia and Syntyche, who are both very useful women in the church who do a lot of good deeds, he wants to see them live in harmony with one another and not in conflict. Uh, But perhaps one of the best places to see Paul's emphasis on unity is in his first letter to Corinth. Uh, If you remember when he wrote that first letter, the church in Corinth was an absolute mess. Uh, There was a member living in open, in kind of a gross form of open sexual immorality, and nobody was addressing that issue. Uh, He actually has to tell the men in the church that they shouldn't be sleeping with prostitutes. Uh, There were divisions among them. Some of them were coming to the Lord's Supper drunk. Others of them were suing each other over issues. And, uh, And so the question becomes, if you were the Apostle Paul, and there was a church that you were responsible for that had all these problems, and you had to write a letter to them, let's say, before visiting them, where would you start? Where would you start your letter? What would you address first? I'd be tempted to address the abuse of the Lord's Supper personally because I'm passionate about that, but that's not where Paul starts. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, I hear that there are divisions among you, And then for the next two chapters, Paul deals with their divisions to try to unify the church, and here's the reason why. When a church is united, it can tackle even the most difficult problems. But when a church isn't united, even garden variety issues, even small problems that every church faces to some degree, they can become unsolvable. They can become complicated and be the spark that burns the church down. Um, And and so, Paul starts with unity so that the church can then, in a unified fashion, turn and address the other challenges that they face. And I think it's fascinating here. The Ephesian church was not in the trouble that the Corinthian church was, 
And yet, when Paul turns to be practical, what's his first paragraph about? It's about preserving the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so, your responsibility and mine to this unity that the Spirit has created is to be eager, to be diligent, to to make haste to preserve it wherever possible. And that leads to our third question, which is really the main question I wanted to answer in this message. How do I help preserve the unity the Spirit has created? Well, there's really two ways that we do this. The first is to put on the attitudes that sustain unity. Uh, And those attitudes were already mentioned by Paul in verse 2. Look again at, at, well, go back to verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. The the, The virtues in the church that help us preserve unity are humility, gentleness, patience, and tolerating tolerating one another in a loving way. Now, I talked about each of these virtues last week, so I'll try not to make it too long going through them, but I do want to emphasize again the way that these virtues naturally flow out of our experience with the gospel. What is it that happened when you repented and placed your faith in Jesus? Well, you came to the point where you felt appropriately condemned by God's law and your own conscience. You knew you were in big trouble with God, and you you knew you needed a Savior. And what that did was this. The good news of the gospel starts with the bad news that we're sinners and that we're worse sinners than we often realize, and that has a humbling effect on all who come to Christ. The gospel humbles proud hearts. And because of its humbling effect, the gospel message also helps people be gentle with others once we've been broken of our own sense of self-righteousness and our own virtue. Uh, When we realize how much we've been forgiven by God, we can also be gentle with others. When your eyes are open to, to how wretched you actually are and how much God has forgiven you, it destroys that sense of your own virtue, it destroys self righteousness, and it helps make us gentler with other people. And it comes naturally for those who are humble and gentle to also be patient with others. When you understand how patient God has been with you, it helps you not to demand instant change from everyone around you. And the love of God also helps us to love those who are difficult by bearing up with them. Again, the idea of tolerance in this verse is that you're bearing up with, you're bearing up in a relationship that's difficult. You're bearing up with someone else who's difficult either because they're they're just different or you guys have different personalities or because they've sinned against you. Uh, You're bearing up, you're tolerating them in love. Now, all of these virtues bring me to a very, very important observation. Uh, There are some very helpful biblical conflict resolution paradigms out there that take what the Bible says about our conflicts and sort of organize it topically and logically in a way that a sort of a Western American mind uh, uh, finds helpful. Uh, There are great biblical conflict resolution paradigms that can give you goals that you can map onto any conflict situation you face and know what you should be doing to, t- to try to please God in the middle of that situation. And we even uh, studied one of those paradigms in adult Sunday school a few years back when we went through The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. 
Uh, the Bible also gives a lot of very helpful principles about how we, we can become better listeners and better speakers. In other words, how we can communicate better with one another. The Bible has excellent communication principles that will help you with your relationships. And, and uh, you know, because I'm a nuts and bolts practical guy, I always like to recommend good resources for that. But here's the thing that we need to say in the face of these attitudes that help us uh, keep unity. All the conflict resolution paradigms in the world and all the greatest communication principles from the Bible won't work if the atmosphere of your church is proud, harsh, impatient, and intolerant, because that will set an atmosphere that makes every single conversation awkward and difficult. You have to actually have these, uh, these virtues create an atmosphere where difficult conversation can happen according to those biblical principles. Uh, and so, it, we, need to, we need to not underemphasize how important this humility and gentleness and patience is. Um, arrogant people are the ones who split churches. Harsh, harsh and judgmental people cause divisions. People who are impatient about change, they create unnecessary conflict because they can't be patient with the process of other people being sanctified. Uh, people who just want church to be easy will often give up and leave prematurely when it would have been better to stick in there and tolerate some of the difficulty and try to be an answer to the problem. It might have been better to stay and help, but they weren't willing to tolerate any difficulty in church life. And so, the first way we need to be diligent to preserve unity in the church is by cultivating these virtues, which is going to mean we have to repent in those moments when we've been proud or harsh or impatient or uh, not tolerant in the middle of a difficult situation, when we, when we have been wanting to check out or avoid in the middle of a difficult uh, relationship. You help preserve the unity of the Spirit by growing in these virtues. But if we can grow in these virtues, if you can grow in humility and gentleness and patience and love, it will make you uh, a valuable ally with the Spirit in preserving unity in the church. And so, the first way that you help preserve unity is by growing in these virtues. The second way that you help preserve unity is by focusing on the basis for our unity. And this is where we have to counsel ourselves in the middle of conflict by speaking truth to ourselves, speaking truth to our own hearts, making our theology work for us by reminding our, ourselves of what's true even in the middle of conflict. You see, Paul wants you to know that there is a unity we enjoy with each other that, isn't, that we don't have to pretend it exists. It's actually uh, based on very real and concrete objective truths. There's a concrete foundation to the unity that the Spirit has created among us. And in verses 4 through 6, Paul lists uh, seven foundation stones, if you will, that, that provide a foundation for our unity. Look again at verses 4 through 6 with me. Paul says, "'There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all.'" These seven foundation stones upon which true unity in the church is built uh, give us a, a basis, an objective basis 
for being one with each other. And where they're present, uh, there is a unity that exists regardless of any differences that actually makes any split that would follow even more sadly ironic in view of all the things we had going for us uh, that we were unified about and that we shared in. But on the other hand, we need to say this about these foundation stones. Where these foundation stones are not present, any attempts at unity will be superficial. They'll be artificial. And that is actually my great concern with the ecumenical movement. The ecumenical movement has a good desire to see Christians come together. But the unity we build has to be a unity that's built on the truth. Encouraging external unity amongst Christians uh, who have profound doctrinal differences is unhelpful in the long run if you encourage those Christians to just sweep their differences under the rug. There won't be a genuine spiritual unity. The differences have to be faced up to and acknowledged, and there needs to be at least an agreeable disagreement reached uh, even as they try to work together. And my own experience with the ecumenical movement is that at best, it's asking Christians who have profound doctrinal differences to simply act like those disagreements don't exist. But at worst, it puts pressure on the true Christians to accept wolves and false teachers as fellow saints. And that is a deep concern. We have to have these seven foundation stones if we're going to have unity with other Christians. And where these foundation stones are present, they help to create a powerful camaraderie with each other because we all share in the same experience and we all value the same things. The first foundation stone is that we share a common life in the church. Paul says, verse 4, there is one body. Now, that is Paul's, if you read his letters, that is his favorite metaphor for the church, the human body. Uh, Christ is the head of the church, and the church is full of diverse people with diverse spiritual gifts that are all connected to one another in the body. So, to be a Christian is to be under the authority of Christ and connected to all those who are also under His authority. In Romans chapter 12, Paul explains the metaphor this way, for just as we have many members in one body, and all members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Uh, Paul goes on to use this very language in chapter 4. When we get over to verses 15 and 16, I can't wait to get there. This is what he says. Uh, By speaking truth in love, we are to grow up together in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So, by wisely speaking truth in love to one another, we help each other grow up spiritually into Christ-likeness as we share in this common life in the body of Christ. And we're going to… I can't wait till we get there. Those are excellent verses. But that's the idea, that we all share this experience of being in the body of Christ. The second foundation stone that all true Christians share is the experience of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It is through the work of the Holy Spirit that we're all Christians. Paul explains the relationship of the Holy Spirit to the body of Christ this way. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, for by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slave or free, and we're all made to drink of one Spirit. Uh, It's interesting. 
when we share our testimonies, when, when we share our stories of how we came to Christ uh, and how we came to faith in Him, um, we all have these very unique stories. And, and there's all these delightful differences in the details of our stories that are fun to hear as we hear different people share uh, how the Spirit drew them to faith and repentance. Uh, but I need to, to add, even as we delight in the different ways uh, that God works with different people to bring them to faith, we also, even as we appreciate that, need to be aware of this, that the similarities of our conversion are actually more profound than the differences of our stories, because it was through the work of the Spirit that all of us were convicted of our sin and began to see our need for the Savior. It's through His Spirit, that, that one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that we were drawn to Christ as Savior. It's actually by the work of the Holy Spirit that we were born again. Speaking of being born again, this is what Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, uh, and, and again, this is being born again and its connection to the Spirit. He says, John 3, verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. We all experience the same work of the Spirit in regeneration, in being born again. We're all experiencing now the same work of the Spirit in helping us grow in holiness, in sanctification. And so, we, we share uh, a person who is the common source of our regeneration, being born again. We all share the same person who is a common source of helping us grow in holiness and obedience to Christ. The third foundation stone Paul mentions is our common future. We share one hope. Now, this word hope is actually confusing for an English-speaking audience because something is lost in the translation. The English-speaking idea of hope is a desire for something to happen. Uh, I grew up as a Seattle Seahawks fan, so maybe it could look this way. Chris, do you ever think the Seahawks will win another Super Bowl? Answer, I hope so. I mean, no no knowledgeable football fan would think that they would do so anytime soon, but I hope so. See, all it communicates is something that I would like to see happen. But the Greek idea of hope combines desire, what I'm hoping will happen, what I'm desiring will happen, what I wish, it combines that desire with certainty. It's guaranteed that this will happen. Uh, that's the idea. When God called us back to Himself in the gospel, He gave us the promise of a guaranteed future where death doesn't just end it all. It doesn't just end our relationship with Him and other people who are in Him. He's promised to take, him, uh, take us to Himself in glory. He's promised to so thoroughly transform us that in the life to come, we'll never be tempted to sin again. He's promised to give us a resurrection body that will never get sick or age or die again. Uh, he's promised, uh, Christ has promised, to return and set all things to rights on this sin-cursed earth. And so, our hope is a certain future. It's a guaranteed inheritance. It's not the foolish hope for a football team with ill-conceived and poorly executed game plans to win it all. That's not what it is. It's a guaranteed future that we can bank on. We have a guaranteed hope. And when you think about that in the context of unity, I'll confess this, when we look back at the past and when we look around at the present, there's some logical reasons for disunity 
But when we look at the future, there's oneness, there's unity, because we all share in the same hope. We're all looking forward to Christ's return. We're all looking forward to being uh, like Him because we'll see Him as He is. Uh, We all share the same hope. Uh, We also share a common master. Uh, Paul says it this way in verse 5, we share one Lord, and that Lord we share is the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 10.9 says it this way, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Notice that the Scriptures don't give us an option for accepting Jesus as Savior, but rejecting Him as Lord. Uh, The one who saves is one Lord. Every true Christian confesses Him as Lord. And everyone who rejects Him as Lord will eventually bow the knee to Him as Lord at the judgment. And so, we're united, all the genuine believers are united by our submission to Jesus as Lord. Uh, The next foundation stone that serves as a basis for our unity is that we all share one gospel. Verse 5 says, one faith. Now, the New Testament uses the word faith in two senses, uh, subjectively and objectively. Uh, uh, An illustration of using it subjectively would be when Paul and Silas say to the Philippian jailer, believe, place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You have to believe to be saved. But the New Testament also uses the word faith to refer to objective truth. There is a content to this faith we believe in. Jude uses the word faith objectively in his letter to the churches when he says, "'Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. There is a body of spiritual truth that represents the Christian faith.'" Acts chapter 2 verse 42 calls this body of teaching the apostles' teaching. Saving faith confesses, I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the holy church, the communion of the saints, the fellowship, excuse me, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. That is an example of the one faith that we believe in. The the one gospel, the one true saving faith has content to it that we believe. The sixth reality that binds us together is uh, that we share a common baptism. Now, the New Testament speaks of two kinds of baptisms. Uh, There's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and then there's water baptism. The baptism of the Holy Spirit happened for all the disciples and the apostles on the day of Pentecost. It happens to those of us who believe now, 
at our conversion. Our baptism by the Holy Spirit, I believe, uh, not only happens at conversion, but I believe Paul was actually referring to it. It's in the body of his theology, I think he covered that base back in verse 4 when he talked about how we were all brought into one body. We were baptized into one body by the Holy Spirit. Here, I believe, Paul is speaking of water baptism in verse 5. Now, Concerning our contemporary situation, even though Paul didn't know this was going to be an issue back when he was writing, or I think we could assume he didn't know this was going to be an issue, you might look out at uh, the way things are in the contemporary church and think it's ironic that he chose baptism to bring us together when so many Christians disagree about whether to sprinkle or immerse and whether to baptize infants or only those who make a credible profession of faith. And, and it doesn't work well to have a church where we're trying to practice both of those. So, so we have different, you know, the Baptists and the Presbyterians have different churches, and we totally understand that. And so you might think that it's kind of ironic that Paul would say that this is what brings us uh, together. But I think that what Paul is pointing to is the meaning of baptism. In the New Testament, uh, baptism is accompanied by a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ. It's where we publicly take our oath of allegiance to Christ in front of other people. It's where we publicly identify with Him in His death, burial, and resurrection. Um, baptism is where we go public with our faith. And in that sense, we all share in the same baptism in terms of baptism's meaning, right? It may have been different kinds of baptism. We might disagree on how to administrate baptism, but in terms of baptism's meaning, we all share in agreeing on its meaning. Uh, it is uh, an identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so, we share the same public confession. We all took the same uh, oath of loyalty uh, to Christ in our baptism. And then the final foundation stone that Paul mentions here is that we share the same heavenly Father. In verse 6, Paul says, one God and Father of all who is through all and uh, who is over all and through all and in all. Uh, back in chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, you'll remember that God the Father desired to adopt us to Himself as sons and daughters. But in order for that adoption to take place, the price of our redemption had to be paid, and Jesus paid that redemption on the cross. So, through the work of Christ, we've now all come to know the same heavenly Father, and Jesus encourages us to address Him as Father when we pray. And so, then combining all of the Trinity together, Paul says it this way. He already said it this way back in Ephesians chapter 2. Through Christ, we Jews and Gentiles both have our access in one Spirit to the Father. Through the work of the Son and the Spirit, we've all come to know the same Father. At Grace Fellowship Church, we are one in the sense that we all share in the common life of being part of the universal church together. We share the common experience of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We share the guarantee of the same glorious future. We share the same Lord. We share the same faith. We share the same baptism, and we've all been adopted by the same Heavenly Father. And so, even in moments when we're not humble, or we're not as gentle as we ought to be, or we're not patient, or we're not loving with one another, these same profound experiences 
are still what we share in common and reasons for us to reconcile and live in harmony. And so, I want to close by asking this question that will get us going with application. How can we practically preserve the unity of the Spirit here at Grace Fellowship? Well, number one, pray. Uh, In my prayer journal, regularly I pray for the unity of our church. Uh, That's the positive way of saying it. The negative way of saying it is I pray that God would protect us from ever getting involved in a church split. I don't want to see that happen. And so, I would invite you, pray for unity. When it comes to praying for unity, our motto shouldn't be, after all else fails, pray. Our motto should be, before all else fails, pray. So, pray for unity amongst the believers here at Grace Fellowship Church, and also pray for the believers outside our church uh, to be unified with one another in the common things that we work across denominational lines uh, to accomplish. Pray for unity. Number two, be quick to resolve conflicts biblically. I believe that the seeds of division are already sown, they're already lying on the ground waiting to germinate, which means that we can't let disagreements fester and conflicts fester. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about how Christians can resolve conflict with one another, and one person who's brought it all together and put it in a very short booklet is Ernie Baker, and so this is our resource for this week. Uh, It's a little booklet by Ernie Baker, and it's entitled, Help, I'm in Conflict. And uh, if you're in conflict, Ernie spells out for you what the Scriptures say about how Christians ought to conduct themselves in the middle of conflict, and he gives you a game plan for how to go about trying to resolve that conflict. At the very end of it, he, he has a list of questions he asks you that kind of help draw you out and help you understand what's going on in your own heart and how you should respond. And then after that, he has a whole page uh, that goes further with other books or websites that can be helpful for you uh, in resolving your conflict, because he, he knows he can't say it all just in one little booklet. But we have four of those in the back. I put them in front of the mints, so you have to go past them to get to the mints. Uh, and if you're in conflict, in, inside or outside the church, I think this is a, an excellent, excellent booklet that will help. So, uh, pray, be quick to resolve conflicts biblically. Number three, grow in the virtues that produce unity from verse two. We already looked at those humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance for those who are difficult, motivated by love, you know, pray for God to grow you in those. Uh, growing in them is going to mean that we have to confess and repent when we haven't uh, acted in the way that, that we ought to. But again, I believe that if these qualities are increasingly yours, you'll be a powerful ally with the Holy Spirit in preserving unity. And then number four, focus on the objective foundation stones of our unity. We're all part of the same body of Christ. We all share in the same Spirit. We have the same hope for the future. We have one Lord. We have one faith. We have one baptism. We have the same Heavenly Father. Um, I'll admit, even as I list those again to you, we are an eclectic group of people, right? Honestly, uh, we probably never would have met or come together if it wasn't for Christ. We're an eclectic bunch here at Grace Fellowship. Uh, And even after having come to Him, there's still a lot that we could disagree on. But I believe if we'll focus on the things that unite us, we'll be able to make progress in our heavenly journey together in a way that's harmonious and loving and genuinely edifying. Well, let's pray.